Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Welcome to the Publishing Radio Podcast. Uh, This week we have with us Annika Scott, who's the author of an international bestseller book, The German Heirist. Wait, well, she writes kind of historical dramas, is that right? They look like... and has a lot of experience and, and a, a kind of a long and varied career and had the honor of debuting in COVID. Mm. Um, if you want to tell us a bit about yourself, that would be amazing and how you came to live in Germany. <laughs> yeah, uh, hi. I, I, I have lived in Germany for about 20 years, which tells you a little bit about how old I am uh, because I was a young woman who was a lot braver back then than I am now, I think. And <laughs> so I had always sort of been oriented to international stuff. I I had studied international politics and um, journalism. So I happened to meet a very nice German man, (laughs) ended up just giving it a shot, and 20 years later I'm still here. So that's that's how I ended up here, and that's how my career has ended up being a little bit different than normal people's careers (laughs) in publishing. I've I've been in the UK for 18 years, I think, and by next week. I'm divorced, though, so that, that didn't work out quite so well. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's It's been good. It's been a long road. Should I just yeah. say something about how I even got to my debut moment, even? I can give you, like, the snapshot of yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I am a fan of the podcast. I was telling Sonia that before I got on, so <laughs> I am thrilled to be able to, <laughs> to, like, I get to tell... A little bit of my story now and hopefully um, people will like not be frustrated and scared of publishing because sometimes you have this amazing journey as well that you never expected so basically I wrote my debut for like eight years or something and you know I had babies in there and you know all the stuff that you do when you're busy with little kids and writing and I ended up with an agent relatively fast and after she took on the German, what the book that was to become the German heiress, we spent about three years editing. Years. <laughs> so I thought that book was just never going to really see the light of day, or at least I wasn't sure. But once it went on submission, it sold it. Well, it got its first offer in about ten days. It went. It wow. went to auction in various countries. And I ended up, I think within about two weeks, I was at the Frankfurt Book Fair meeting people. And then I was in London about a week or two later meeting people. (laughs) And that was, you know, that was this sort of whirlwind amazing thing that had been happening 
that I never, ever expected. And that's one of the things that, that I feel just, um, you know, people out there with all the kind of doom and gloom in publishing have to remember that that sometimes, and you never know who it's going to be, you know, the lightning can strike in a good way. Can I can I pause there and ask a bunch of questions? Sure. <laughs> is, that, is that okay, Sunny? You can ask about the Frankfurt Book Fair. Uh, that is one of the four <laughs> yes. things I have, yes. So... First, I like to make wildly horrible guesses at where people are from based on their accent. This is going to be oh, no. uh, this is going to be really fun since you've been in Germany for twenty years. But do I detect some Great Lakes? Oh my God, are you good? You read my bio. Did you read my bio first? No, I, I have not read your bio at wow. all. Wow, Sherlock Holmes, really good. You are a lot better at guessing American accents <laughs> than European ones. I. There's a there's a guy that works at my local grocery store, and I asked him if he was from Manchester, and he's from God, what's that port town where people Liverpool? have mush mouth? What? Liverpool? Yes, Liverpool. That's the one. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Sorry, I just I knew you were going to say Liverpool. It's it's weird actually. A lot of people get them conflated. Yeah. So well, usually I can Americans get I, I get at least some Liverpool accents. Okay, because uh, they uh, what do they call the them? Scousers, right? And they they have that scousers. Yeah, yeah, they have that. I don't know what that means. I just know that they call themselves that, and they have that very distinctive. I don't. I don't even know what to call it. But yeah, anyway, very distinctive <laughs> accent. Dialect. Yeah, yeah, palatization, whatever it is. But yeah, this guy sounded just like he was from Manchester, but got that wrong, and he didn't seem very happy. So anyway, that is that is my stupid, useless question. Yeah, but I have to know now. Uh, that, how did you know? How did what did you hear that made you think Great Lakes? Oh, let's dig deeper here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The, the, there's just a there, there's just a, a little different way of of saying a few vowels people from the Great Lakes area have, um, but it, it's slightly different from uh, the way Canadians yeah. speak. And the way that like people from uh, northern Montana, they 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 have the bag and and a few of the Canadian tendencies. But yeah, Great Lakes. I don't know exactly what it is, but I, I worked with Great Lady for a number of years, who was from Minnesota or Michigan or somewhere like that, and she she had a very strong Great Lakes accent, and there was just a hint of it in there. Oh, so shout out Liz, <laughs> you don't listen to this podcast, but you're awesome. Okay, so getting back to uh, pertinent yeah. things, I'm sorry for that detour. So you said you wrote your book for eight years and then edited it for three, and I feel for you because I, I did a lot of that with my book, my first book, right? <laughs> I'm uh, an obsessive person so and had a lot of life stuff come up in there. I am curious, though what that looked like for you especially those three years editing with your either your agent or your editor was that really because life stuff got in the way or because you went through like tons and tons of edits uh how did that work was for that you? just historical yeah, yeah yeah it was a little bit of both um i think there was some maternity leave in there and um various other kind of life stuff I also yep. think my agent, who is in London, is a really brilliant editor to begin with. And so she really kind of ripped the book apart in the sense yeah. that she saw the potential that was in that raw manuscript and was willing to kind of sit down with me and go over it again and again and again. And so yeah. I, I, 
I didn't think that's how it was going to work because I, I think I, I, I got her as a, or got the offer from her to represent me within about six weeks or something of sending my first uh, query. So, I mean, that was really fast. And so I thought, all right, I'm through. It's going to work. You know, the book is great. You know? <laughs> and, and then I, and she was just so, so great about kind of leading me to 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 look at writing in a totally different way in a way I mean she she really really did a great job with that and so it was such a valuable and painful few years that none of the editing I've had to do since then has been that hard so and I've 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 gotten three books um published now and none of them and nothing I did with my editors was as hard as as what I did with my agent in that first phase. Yeah. Do you want to shout out your agent? Oh, Letitia Rutherford at Watson Little in London. Like, go break down her door. If you've got great manuscripts, send them to her. She's absolutely brilliant. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it's interesting to hear different agent names because we get really, we do get really locked into um, sci-fi and fantasy world where it feels like I kind of know the name (laughs) of every agent in our genre. Right, yeah. And then you hear one from another genre and it's like, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yep. I don't know anything yeah, about I, them. I, yeah, I that's... don't know if she even takes uh, fantasy or, or anything like that. I don't think she does. I was even thinking of, of a, I had a book idea that would have gone into a kind of uh, speculative direction a little bit. And I thought, ooh, you know, I don't even know if she would <laughs> she would take that. So Yeah, so often I think sci-fi and fantasy agents tend to concentrate mm-hmm. on just that. I think it's because most genres well a lot of genres are defined by kind of their plot structure and i mean historical is not the same historical is defined by obviously the the time setting but sci-fi and fantasy is defined by speculative elements so it's so broad you know you can have crime Mm -hmm. sci-fi and romance fantasy and you just end up having to be sff Mm -hmm. focused i think um my agent used to take all age categories from picture book middle grade ya adults and romance and contemporary and sci-fi and fantasy and had to just narrow it down in the past few years so anyway <laughs> sorry that was a tangent no that makes um, that makes sense and and i'm i'm glad you led us through that because that's one thing that i don't know maybe we've hit on it on the podcast but i think a lot of authors talk about with each other is you know the idea of agent fit and agents who are willing to go through the an editing process or multiple editing processes with you and you know some authors like that some authors don't um but yeah that's uh that's super interesting so yeah i i have a couple other questions from your your little intro uh you said auction in multiple countries was there anything that happened or that your agent did to make that happen other than uh, just submitting like normal? And, and did you get to see and participate in much of that process that led to multiple auctions? Um, I had kind of an unusual phase there, like how my debut was bought. So so I'll just take you through the steps or else you can't <laughs> imagine yeah. what that was. but. Basically, basically we submitted uh, in, I think we had an agency in New York who was pairing with my London agent so that my London agent submitted in the UK, Uh, my New York people submitted in New York, and London got back to me faster. So, so the 
the preempt oh, wow. uh, came from from an imprint uh, of Penguin Random House uh, in in the UK, and hmm. um, there was a sort of pressure and whirlwind around it because it was about I can I don't know if this is exactly true, but something like a week before the Frankfurt Book Fair. This is what this was all happening, or two weeks, or something like that. It was really, really close, right before Frankfurt. So um, they were like, "We want this book, and we're going to take it to Frankfurt um, if you give us world rights, right?" So that, um, in case any of the listeners are not real familiar with rights, I can just say one thing, which is world rights is when the uh, um, the publisher takes um, the rights for its own territory, if it's United States or UK, and also the right to sell the book in translation markets around the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was some back and forth um, between my agent and, and I and that publisher about whether to sell world rights or not. Um, we ended up taking that deal. It was a, quite a generous deal. And that was an exciting I, an exciting possibility to know that the book would be going to Frankfurt immediately. Like we knew this imprint was going to like m mobilize and get the book, you know, seen at Frankfurt. So at the very same time, I was on the phone with some editors in New York, but by then the book had sold world rights in the UK already, which meant that my publisher in the UK took over the foreign rights that, you know, the United States yeah. uh, became one of the foreign rights deals then. At that same time, offers or at least auctions were coming in from countries like Italy. I think the Czech Republic also had an auction and there was another one, but I can't remember what it was. And so that was happening, I think, partly because of the timing. You know, all of this was happening right before Frankfurt and the imprint was really excited about the book. So I was just lucky at that moment that there was that much interest in and in, in drive. And I wasn't involved in, in that directly, as in I didn't talk to the editors from the other uh, countries, from the translation markets. All I had done, because I'm in Germany, right? So I, I took a train to Frankfurt <laughs> and went down and met the, the rights editor, basically, from, from my new publisher and talked to her. And she went out and... and along with my agent and talked to to the reps for the for the foreign publishers and things were just rolling and happening i think one of the uh, one of the publishers i think this was italy like offered at frankfurt they hadn't even read the book as far as i know so i mean stuff like that you know also wow. happened and it would just it just felt like this tsunami of of interest that i never expected to have so on that side i mean a lot of listeners are american um I know what the Frankfurt Book Fair is generally, but obviously your experience of it is more direct. If you're if you're explaining this to readers who haven't heard of it, what is the Frankfurt Book Fair? Why why does it matter on the European scene and maybe to Americans as well? And just as a, a kind of third oh, yeah. wrap-up question for that, have you heard the the phrase a Frankfurt book? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, well, I think book? like uh, a big book was. Yellow face, I think that was like all over Frankfurt, right? Mm. A Frankfurt yeah. book. Well, okay, Frankfurt book fair. Imagine some hotels and a big conference center, and the entire huge, huge halls in this conference center full of book people. Because I, I went for a weekend as well, and and so it's just wall to wall books and people talking about books and making deals. 
There's parts for the agents. Um, the agents wander around talking to uh, foreign publishers about their authors. The publishers who have uh, world rights will, will go around and, and try and get other publishers interested in translating those books. And so I, I, it is a huge thing. And if your book is sort of a Frankfurt book and your publisher wants to put you at the front, they want to really focus your book there, then you might have those big, huge posters, the big, huge banners and things with your book on it. I, don't, I didn't get that, but certainly, the, you know, that's, let's say, or um, was it, I can't remember, was it the London Book Fair or the Frankfurt Book Fair where Lessons in Chemistry, where they had built like a kitchen, like in the book Lessons in Chemistry, at the fair and had, you know, you could get photographed in this kitchen that's like uh, what was described in the book. So, I mean, if, if you're a big book, a book fair, Frankfurt or London or wherever can really amplify it. So that's why you you would, if you yeah. can, it, um, you, you want to time it so that your book ends up uh, being at these international fairs. Well, because we, we've talked to Nick Benj about the hype train and generating hype and how that becomes a runaway thing with books. And there, there's, I think, a lot of that at these, these big European fairs. And if you're an American author, it's where your rights will get sold. If you're a British author, it's your chance to go international. Because actually, uh, something possibly, I don't know if Americans know that or not, but a lot of British authors don't actually make it over the Atlantic to the US. And I think a lot of Europeans don't as well. It's It's just a little bit harder for us to to break in on that side uh, I, the only tale i'd heard of uh, at the frankfurt book fair before yours was was a well not nearly as fun and it was a a, a writer acquaintance of mine who was picked up by an agent who was like oh this is going to be a frankfurt book this is going to be a frankfurt book it'd be amazing yeah. and they took it to frankfurt and no one bought it and the agent dropped him and it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> absolute cratering oh. i know is it well it happens doesn't it but yeah so Definitely Yellowface. I think that was a London Book Fair one where they were giving so much right. swag away for it, <clears throat> all the the bags and posters and things. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask. <laughs> so I mean, I have heard of London Book Fair where there seem to be a lot of industry folks who go and they're making deals at the at the book fair, mm-hmm. and it's very focused on the uh, I guess the behind the scenes business. Uh, aspects of moving books rather than trying to sell books to consumers, although I don't know, maybe there's that aspect too. Uh, and now it sounds like Frankfurt is the kind of the EU version of that, right? Is Frankfurt's a lot bigger, yeah. Frankfurt's bigger than London. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Much, Huge. much bigger. So much bigger. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I think... It- yeah, like think about the difference between like British Fantasy Con versus like World Con, and that I mean I think that's kind of the difference between like London Book Fair and Frankfurt in terms of size. It's yeah. So um, so that's my next question, yeah. and maybe you two know, maybe you don't, but is there an American version of this, and or just other versions generally of conventions or gatherings of? of industry big timers where they're going to make deals because I can't think of any specific American version of that like there's but your one territory mm-hmm. is the thing yeah so the reason why there needs to be a European one is there's lots of European countries yeah. basically yeah. And, and, and it's not just like it's the European countries in translation and then it's things like people also buying English right. language rights for those countries so 
you know, there's English language versions of my books in France, but there's not like a French translation, yeah. for example, and stuff like that. So, but the US is more simple. You just want territory. You just want so single. Yeah. So London and Frankfurt are, <laughs> are more focused on translation right deals and wheeling and dealing with that, not necessarily looking at wooing booksellers and, and things like that. I've, I've been... I've been told by someone here that London Book Fair is really more about the the London publishers because London is kind of the big English language book scene aside from New York. It's more about London publishers kind of sharing <laughs> to each other <laughs> and making friends and networking. Yeah. But this again, we're one territory. The UK is one territory. I think that sounds really it accurate because yeah. um, since I have an agent in London, that I'm in London more. I hear more uh, about London than I do about New York, and I feel that the the difference between how how the UK works in publishing and how the United States works are very different. So, so in the UK, I feel it's it is much more personal in the sense that um, the relationships yeah. with people it matters in the United States, but but the US is so big. So, so everything or at least a lot in the UK seems to be focused on London, and um, so those. It, it, it isn't. It isn't surprising that something like the London Book Fair would then be kind of a moment where the publishing industry in the UK, um, you know, kind of gets together, and that's where they they, you know, take stock of things. Yeah. Whereas Frankfurt, I don't know how old it is. I had actually looked this up somewhere, but I think it's relatively old, also um, as far as book fairs go. But I'm actually not sure, so don't quote me. But um, it's a it's sort of central if you think about it. You know, if you're flying in from, I don't know, if you're yeah. flying in from the United States, you're flying in from China, or you're flying in from the UK or from South Africa or wherever, um, it's it's kind of more convenient to do that in the middle of Europe. So I think that that has partly something to do with it, but also for sure, um, all the different uh, countries and, and translation rights in Europe and it's easier for the European publishers to get there. But but when I was there, I was I was only there a little bit for the industry side of it because there's always an industry side of the fair, and then there's a public side of the fair where where readers can go, people who love books can go, and um, by then all of the editors and and rights people have left, <laughs> though. But. I had yeah. actually met my rights person, my agent, at uh, one of the kind of fancy schmancy hotels where they have cocktails and and um, you know champagne, because that's also part of part of the fair, right? Is that that social aspect of it? And it was amazing. I walked in and I had to meet them at this hotel bar. And the, um, you know, the waiter asked me who I am because you're not kind of not supposed to walk in off the street <laughs> to a Frankfurt Book Fair, you know, event, um, even if it's at a hotel. And I just had said, you know, I'm an author and I'm looking for my, you know, agent and my rights people. And they're like, oh, you're an author, you know, come with us. And suddenly, you know, you're, you're sort of an important person. It was amazing. And as we walked through, you just saw these little tables full of people with with stacks of just stuff about books and they're talking about books passionately i think that these sorts of fairs they're not for authors 
You know, they really aren't. They're they're there for the business yeah. people. But just even having that glimpse of the fair, it, it was it was amazing to see so many people there on the business side of it, but to see how much they loved books and how much they're just interested in talking about books. That's what that's what we're all there for. Yeah. I think it's easy to forget as well, actually sometimes how big some of the foreign language markets can be and that you know, if you're able to get the, the foreign rights deals, it can be lucrative for authors. Um, yeah. I've not talked about the foreign side of my thing very much because it's not been that relevant, but I think Book Eaters has got, including the UK, about 11 translations, which is not that many. Oh, gosh, it's more than I have. I know. It's great. Um, yeah, it's great. I mean, they're mostly small, but a couple of them, like the, the Polish deal was bigger than my oh, wow. UK deal yeah. in terms of just sheer, like, you know, most of them are kind of on the yeah. smaller side, but they can add up. So they, you know. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> really, really shocked at, at one in particular. I was really, really shocked at how good that offer was from, from one of the European markets. And so it was one that went to auction. So obviously auctions can inflate mm. things a bit. But, yes. you know, I, I had no concept like I was this was my debut. And I know you've gone over this in other episodes, but People will throw money at a debut easier than they'll they'll do it on other books down the yeah. road, right? You know, your third, fourth, fifth book, maybe they, you know, you'll you'll get a decent deal on those books you don't know, but on your debut, you don't have any kind of track record. So people will just say, "All right, we think this is going to be a thing. We're going to give you a bunch of money." <laughs> yep. I've heard as well that, that just the, the physical presence of people being in Frankfurt can lead to like they call them the big feeding frenzies, and you hear about oh that that true crime book went to a leavenly yeah. auction at Frankfurt and it's because someone was able to be charismatic in person to present a book in an interesting way and then the editor just gets swept up in it and they're all excited and they're all trying to buy it and yeah. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that happens from these in-person I guess big book fair yeah it's great and, and Sorry, I wish authors that. had some kind of influence on that but we really don't in fact um, most of the stories I've heard about authors who have tried to go to these fairs in order to either meet agents or editors bad idea i would i would suggest not doing that i've i've gone down to frankfurt to to meet my agent just because she happens to be in germany at that time and i'll go go see her but i won't go knocking on doors at the fair that's just not my job as an author well is there like i guess a hostile reception to that from from industry folks if authors are kind of there trying to I don't think it's hostile I also think it's changing because I I think the book fair in Frankfurt even though I'm kind of pre-pandemic my knowledge because I I went in 2019 but I think that they are recognizing that they could have a bit of an author presence but they have to organize it what what they don't like are, are authors who just sort of come with with a manuscript under their arms and they're you know looking you know, looking to corner you in an elevator kind of situation, and and um, every time I've heard something yeah. like that, I'm like, no, you know, don't don't do it. So the head of bookings talked one time about someone sliding um, a manuscript under the floor of her bathroom <laughs> stall. <laughs> She's at a conference. And actually, unless Scott's got a more specific question, that I was going to take the opportunity. You know, you mentioned COVID. You had that fantastic start, the the kind of the buzz and the excitement, and then. COVID happened in the year of your debut, I believe. It looks like you debuted like right when the shutdowns yeah. happened, at least on the U.S. side. Yeah, 
both sides, actually. It happened yeah. in the UK a little earlier. UK and Europe shut down slightly earlier. Yeah, I, I cannot describe how awful that was. <laughs> that was. Yeah, I think I was I was set up to, to fly to fly to the UK to do publish you know you know publicize I was going to go to conferences or whatever you know interviews I was going to be at Goldsboro and sign the books and all the stuff you're supposed to do right it was all set up for me yep and I think it was something like a week a week before you know they just shut everything down in in the UK and in Germany pretty much simultaneously so I was I we had to go pick up our kids from school. Basically, that's how fast it happened. So I I had I was in the car picking up my kids from school and driving her home, my first kid home. And my editors were calling me. My agent called me. I had to pull over to the side of the road and was just in tears because everything was everything was shut down. Nobody knew what was happening. That was just the UK edition, which came out uh, a few weeks, I think, before the US did. When the US book came out, I, I had no expectations that anything was going to happen to it because I I was so devastated already because I, I didn't plan to, to fly to the United States. That was too much. You know, I didn't have the time or the, or the money really at that moment to fly to the States to to do publicity. So I, I was relying on my publisher to to do, you know, what was required. And my book had been shipped, you know, it had been, you know, so the distribution had worked, but then everything shut down. But it ends up that that was actually good for me. What happened is, I mean, the German heiress has sold far, 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 far more uh, books than my others have. It, it, it did extremely well or has done extremely well. So the German heiress was already sitting in stores when everything shut down, but it was in grocery stores. It was at Target. It was at, you know, Costco. It was at places, it was at the only stores that were still open. So you couldn't go to a bookstore, you couldn't go to an airport, but if you are a book lover and you wanted something new to read, it just so happens that I had one of the new books sitting at your local Costco or, or sitting there at Target because it did get on the shelf right before the rest of the world shut down. And I honestly oh, believe wow. that's the reason why, uh, or one of the reasons anyway, it's a good book, you know, <laughs> but one of the reasons why that it did so well is because also there were, it was just, it kind of got lucky in this horribly unlucky Situation on the U.S. side. In the U.K., I feel like the book fell off a cliff. The U.K. didn't really, it couldn't pivot the same way. You know, my book was in bookstores for the most part in the U.K., and the bookstores were closed. So it was really a distribution issue. In the United States, yeah. my book was still available to people who just wanted to pick something up, you know, along with toilet paper yeah. or, or whatever else they were buying. And, and that really, really... You cannot underestimate how important it is to get your book in in these big box stores. Yeah, and I will say as well, the you know the UK is set up a little differently, I think, from the states in that sense. Like we do have some bigger stores, but I remember when I was living in the states, and when I occasionally go back, like the the big WalMarts and stuff, they are massive. Like generally, stores here are the, the equivalent to an American <laughs> convenience store in size. Mm -hmm. Um, well, they are. I mean, it, you know, everything in the, the UK is just sort of 
a little bit smaller scale. The roads are smaller, the cars are smaller, the stores are smaller. My local co-op cooperative is a, a store in the UK. It doesn't sell books. You know, it sells newspapers. If you want a book, you, it's library. There's a library here, but <laughs> otherwise you have to go, I don't know, seven miles to the big Sainsbury's, which might have a few. Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely... <laughs> so... I, I think that timing was a lot of uh, a lot of the issue along with distribution because if you think about it, like if yeah. if my book, I think the timing just didn't work quite in the UK. But like in Canada, for instance, yeah. the book was a bestseller in Canada for about a month on on the big bestseller lists up there, and I had I have a lot of Canadian friends, and and they had been sending me pictures and telling me like the bookstores are closed. But I think Chapters Indigo had supported the book uh, in, in, a, in a big way. And, and so there would be like a display window with just my book in it. And maybe the store is closed, but my book is in the window kind of thing. And, and so, so you know, even that was, was, was helpful during, you know, during this whole time. And that is something that you just, you can't predict how a book is going to do anyway, and we can talk about that if you want, because that's a whole different uh, issue. But, but it was, I think nobody expected my debut in that environment to do as well as it did, because everybody was just in shock and nobody knew what was happening, as we all remember. Well, it's very unfortunate for your UK sales, but it is like a kind of interesting <laughs> case study yeah. in, in what a difference it makes to have that placement and that the visibility like the difference that visibility makes in sales just being able to see a product because we were talking a bit to Cameron and Hurley last week talking about how you know some people still have this view some writers still have this view of their books like if you build it they will come oh no no they don't (laughs) and I I think that the it the market's really 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 full it just is you know and and it's it's daunting really if you if you pay attention to whatever genre you write in and and you really pay attention over over a period of time and you see sort of the same names over and over again who do well or do very well you know you, so you you'll yeah. learn who those core people are in your genre and then there's like a tier sort of below that of of people that you know maybe have have a bestseller uh, and maybe the next book doesn't do as well or or however that might work and it's sort of a little more wobbly you know it's not quite as stable situation as kind of the top tier people in your genre and and so I I was talking to a friend the other day about this and and we feel like even just in the short short time between 2020 and now I've had three books come out and and I feel like the the distance between you know the mega bestsellers or the or the books that do really really well and sort of the mid list is just just this big gaping hole that's getting bigger right and um yeah. and i'm not sure yeah. why it's happening but you know even books that have had i loved the episode you guys did about what was it the marketing threshold or some kind of threshold that that a book uh, support yeah. that they're getting from their publisher and even books that absolutely have everything going for them don't necessarily fly right off the shelves. Um, you know, there's always that element of luck, roll the dice. Yeah. Yeah, what you're saying about the, the tiers being so far apart, that's something I was thinking about a lot recently too, because there's kind of like, who was it? I think it's my agent that was talking to, to some of us saying, you know, most books don't sell like 
a hundred thousand copies in a year that there's like a very small percentage of debuts that will do that right so most people are kind of in the selling 3,000 to 10,000 copies of their debut in a year and then you have the books that are kind of above 100k and there's sort of a big gap in the middle where there's not necessarily as many it's not quite that straightforward but then you have the other tier above us you know like Richard Osman he's always my go-to example because if I'm lucky I might sell 100k copies this year for book eaters and that guy sold 127 in his first week for his debut coming out right that's a different planet (laughs) just in the UK right (laughs) And you're just thinking about the number of books. Like, and I think about 127,000 like hands holding Richard Osman's book. It's wild. I can't fathom that number. That many readers. Yeah, yeah, sales numbers are scary because I absolutely did not know what to expect when my book debuted. Right? Nobody tells you. We hope you sell this many books. Nobody said anything to me. So when when my numbers started coming in. I knew they were probably pretty good because my editor was actually telling me what they were. <laughs> you know, like like if you if they well, if you don't hear anything, then yeah. they probably, you know, there's probably a softer number there and they would just rather not tell you. You know, that's my theory on that one. But um and it was my debut, so of course, you know, you want to know how things are going, but you know, as it happened, I think if I remember right, I, I sold the most books in a week in my sixth week or so. So I basically had growth of, yeah, kind of direct growth all the way to about week six. And I had been told that that was, you know, somewhat, I mean, relatively, yeah, good. Just obviously you want to have growth, yeah. of course. But this idea that we have in our heads that your launch week is so important, you know, yeah, but it's, it's, you know, hopefully what you want to hit is that growth if you can, if you can get it. Did you, uh, did you do a hardback? Um, In the UK, we did. And in the US, it was trade paperback release. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I wonder if that really helped you, actually, because the, the, the hardback, I mean, my hardback did okay. And then I wasn't really sure, you know, because again, there's so much we don't know about our own industry. I wasn't really sure how the paperback release would go for book eaters and for a combination of factors, the paperback just mm-hmm. blew the hardback out of the water. I think because it, that yeah. price point is a lot better <laughs> for most people. Especially now, um, especially now. Yeah. I, I was actually really surprised especially how now. much more a, a trade paperback costs now because I just released... A book in July, and 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 that book is you know a couple dollars more than than or maybe even more so than my debut had been, um, and so even releasing in trade paperback, um, you know, paper's expensive, and and you know the the costs are are being yeah. are being pushed forward. So I feel. When you look at a hardcover, this is a huge issue because I think about this sometimes. I'm like, oh, you know, should should I somehow push to have a hardcover release in the United States? And at this point, I won't do it because I feel that the hardcover is so expensive. So, so, so expensive. And if yeah. I look at my own buying habits, because I love books, I buy lots of books. I, I, I rarely buy a hardcover. And I am a yeah. definite book person, but I will always go for a a trade paperback if, if you know, if I'm going to buy something. So yeah, it's a, did you feel like your editors? Oh, sorry, go on, Scott. Oh no, I, I was just going to <laughs> comment that it's a especially a tough sell to 
get people to buy a hardcover at full price from a debut in a genre that is quite crowded, right? And where differentiation is is quite difficult. I I do wonder, and the you may not have gotten this information. Did your editor or anybody tell you how your book, especially your first book, since there was that difference, you know, between UK and US? Did they tell you how your book was selling online versus in physical stores? Did you ever get a breakdown of, of that? I'm just curious whether that was there was a big difference there, especially because of the pandemic. Um, I don't remember if they gave me that specific breakdown, but one that yeah, really, really okay. surprised me was something like 90% of my sales were print at, at some, during, oh, wow. during the sort of biggest growth of the book. You know, we were getting these numbers in and seeing the the, the ebook numbers because everybody thought, right? Pandemic, people are going to buy ebooks. Yeah. Everybody thought yeah, that, yeah. right? But yeah. but I think that the sort of screen fatigue uh, set in pretty fast with people, and and mm-hmm. and I could not believe that that so many people were buying print as opposed to as opposed to ebook. And historical fiction might be a little different anyway than. Some of the other genres that sell better on ebook anyway, but I, you know, I've never had ebooks outstrip my print sales. My print sales are always stronger. Yeah, there's something in the UK, they have different types of buyers that publishers will talk about, and I run into a little bit of friction sometimes when I talk to not all indie authors, but some indie authors who don't necessarily know that side of the industry that basically there is a readership who only goes to bookstores and loves bookstores and browses the bookstores and that's where they get their books from and that's the readership publishers tend to target so my you know obviously I wasn't doing COVID but the majority of my sales are print sales as well and that that's like my book is just not something that seems to attract many Mm. ebook readers because different reader groups have different buying habits and there's different patterns and I think particularly for like historical fiction or standalone books tend to do really well yeah and that's what I do I write standalone you know historical fiction yeah which makes my life harder (laughs) you know sometimes I wonder why I do that yeah yeah (laughs) Ebooks more about like the tunnel of money where you you hook someone into the story and then they're just paying small increments to buy the rest of the series and and that's a very different style a very different model of the industry which works really well for people who do it well and enjoy it but I can't imagine historical is very easy to do quick series. No. <laughs> I I actually have a a question uh, about that and your process on historical. How much uh, and this may not even be super interesting to listeners because it's not industry related necessarily. But how much goes into the h- historical details and keeping those straight and accurate? Do you have like historian you pay (laughs) to check it or does your publisher you know invest in anything like that or is it really just up to you to to keep all the details um yeah short answer it's up to me i i was a journalist uh, an actual real journalist so i i do research a lot and i do it over the whole process of writing and editing the book so i'm kind of constantly finding new sources and if i need to adjust the story i'll adjust it And so I have just stacks of notebooks, printouts, binders, of course, all the stuff online and, you know, the crap I pull from JSTOR and from, you know, various places where you can get research. So 
I, I will sit and watch yes. YouTube videos about the most obscure stuff, you know, <laughs> from, you know, yep. from uh, historic people, historical buffs who, who, who have great stuff. So um, I will take from wherever I can, um, you know, right down to the song list on, on Spotify and, and have it be period appropriate music. I've been writing 20th century, so that's, that's easy, but it is up to me. I, I, I really do. I do have consultants that I do go to, to check, uh, various cultural things, ethnic things, language things, because I'm yeah. insane, and each of my books is usually set in a different country, or you know the main characters are from a different country, and not necessarily one where I speak the language. <laughs> so I may need people yeah. to look over sources for me or to check that I'm getting stuff right. Yeah, I noticed that you had German, then Soviet, then U.S. So that yeah, that does uh, introduce a broad range of details. Yeah, the third book yeah. is is U.S. and Sicily, which is like my family. Uh, okay. You know, part of my family's from Sicily. So, but none cool. of us speak Italian. You know, so I I mm. you know have been in Sicily a couple of times, and I've met people in my family there and all of that. But I still needed you know people in Italy and Sicilians to to check that the language I was using and you know various other things was accurate. Yeah, I'm I'm incredibly so, impressed at the pace at which you've released because one of my side projects is a historical fiction and I swear to god I spend at least 10 hours just reading random shit for every probably for every 10 minutes I'm actually <laughs> writing anything it is it is rough it it'll catch up I reckon once you build up that kind of knowledge base in your head yeah all yeah. I can recommend is you know from from one historical author to to someone who's taken on this really really mountain of work that that it that this is I think you'll know when you've hit this point where you can set the research aside and just write a story some people don't work like that but I feel I do like I just I just read 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 and collect stuff and and maybe it'll be a few months of just being immersed in stuff and thinking up the story too but trying to make those decisions on what story I want to tell within whatever historical stuff that I'm dealing with and then I just clear my desk, basically. And I have maybe like one little notebook, looks like this, that has sort of the, the bare stuff that I need to write the story. And then I sit and do that. Um, and then I go back in revision. And that's where you start to say, okay, if, do you really need to put in you know, all that other detail? And the answer is usually not really. <laughs> By the way, you just said oh, all, and that there's the Great Lakes. <laughs> all. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. And I, I mean, it depends on how closely your story adheres to, a, you know, historical, uh, a historical narrative that you can't just change. But yeah, uh, that makes a ton of sense. And I like that method. I've got two kind of questions bundled together, I guess. Um, and the, the first one is, I was curious, I guess what happened to your career after COVID then, after that first book came out and how that may or may not change the direction, what, what other books were like, what your publishers were like. But my, I guess my other question is kind of a tagging on, you know, you write in a slightly different genre and, and talk to authors and professionals in that genre. When you listen to the, the, the cast, I guess, were there sort of differences in, or particular differences and similarities that stood out to you, you know? Or, or do you think it's basically similar in your genre as well, the broad? Okay, well, I, I'll answer the first one first. <laughs> Sorry for sticking them together. <laughs> I think the UK and the US were two different things, right? The US uh, or, or in North America, yeah. my debut did really, really, really well. In the UK, less well. 
So for my second book, by the way, my book was orphaned in the UK, sort of in multiple ways, oh. which in case uh, listeners don't know what that is, your editor leaves the, the company. Mm. Both my editor and the publishing director had left my imprint. So basically the two people who were really behind my book were gone within a very, very short time of my book releasing. So when it comes to picking up a second book, that makes things hard, right? Especially when the book didn't do very well. We also had some discussions about rights. We didn't want to give world rights again. So so I left that imprint and went to a different publisher for my second and third book. So it, that was in the UK. In the United States, um, it has been really wonderfully stable. You know, I've had the same editor, the same imprint, what was, what was great about it is, of course, you know, when you're coming off a successful debut, then they want to know what your second book is, and they want to pick it up. They had bought it at auction. The United, my United States publisher had bought the book at auction. The second book they could just pick up as, as an option book. So I didn't sell a multiple book deal anywhere. I sell one book at a time. So... They bought my second book after my first one came out, and and they bought my third book right before my second one came out. So, so basically, all three of my books, or let's say my two successive books, were built on the back of my debut doing well, right? And and so it it okay. can. It's obviously you want your debut to do really well. Of course you do. And, and that would have then consequences for, for how you publish in future. The difference, this does segue really well into your other question, which is differences between fantasy or fantasy sci-fi and historical. And we had just talked about how it's a little harder to do like series books. You know, they don't have these sort of historical trilogies or historical whatever in the same way. As, as what you have in fantasy or, or in sci-fi. So um, there can be things like that, but it just doesn't happen quite as much. It's at least in North America, yeah. standalone um, historical fiction tends to be, you know, what people do. And, you know, maybe there's a sequel. If you're more in the genres like crime genre or whatever, there might be a series. Or if you're doing a spy, a historical spy novel, there might be a series. But, but for the most part, standalone... And so it does make it sort of a different experience from when I've been listening on the podcast. There's been a lot of discussion about multiple book deals and, and, and like this sort of spiral that can happen if you're first if you're first in a series doesn't do well, you know, your your second or third book could spiral yeah. or not even be published and things yeah. like that. I, I have not heard of stuff like that happening in my genre in particular, although it probably does. So so it is quite different to, to be selling book to book to book. Um, I think it's it can be good, it can be really risky to do that. And, and it, it, it is extremely stressful. <laughs> that's all I can say is that, you yes. know, even when, yeah, you, even when yeah. you're like, okay, I came off a, a book that did well, did it do well enough? Because, because nobody tells you what the expectations were. I, I was really nervous when my second book was uh, submitted to my editor and she took like, I don't know, a month or something to, to, to offer on it. And I was like, yeah, you know, and and you know the the deal was really good comparable to my first deal and so i i really was happy about that but again 
my third book came around, I had to offer it to her, you know, again, as an option. I didn't know it was going to happen. So every time, I think I was reading Chuck Wendig's new uh, sort of advice book. He had a book called uh, Gentle Writing Advice, right? Yes. And he said something about how you you always feel like the career is about to collapse or you always feel like you're about to fall off a cliff (laughs) and and, you know not to get too negative but but honestly there are moments where you're not quite sure at least I'm not quite sure you know where where I may be going next because I'm not sure if expectations line up everywhere your publisher wants you to do versus how the book is performing in a certain period of time that sort of thing and because success is so often tied to specific editors, if that specific editor is gone, it might be that person who made your book a success and would have continued to make your career a success is now the missing component from the rest of your career. That always that always scares me a bit. I do think our genre is probably heading more towards standalones at the moment. I think yeah. you speaking of Chuck Wendig, he had that article recently about standalones versus series, and, and that's a whole discussion that's going on in publishing because actually publishers I think it's not that great for them either when they release a a trilogy and the first book tanks and everybody's chained to the the next two and just in general they're more cautious so I I would not be surprised if we we were contract by contract and I do have friends where it's like they have a series but every book in that series was a fresh contract so it was like you write the book did it get sales okay here's book two did it get sales okay here's book three which is you know, you're on kind of tender hooks, whatever the, the phrase is. I think I'm probably in the best of all worlds for that kind of stuff, where it's a multi-book contract for standalone. So if my book's a fuck-up, I just try again. <laughs> I get three shots to not be a fuck-up and uh, hope for a lightning strike. And it's sort of less important. Like if my second book bombs or whatever, but the first book did okay then it, i still have some leeway just that just sense, okay yeah <laughs> no you know i, mean. I do yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it, it th- there's a lot less there's less pressure that way i think yeah um but that that to me is the, the real privilege of my deal more than anything is is not even like the size of the advance though that's linked to marketing it's that i have space to get unlucky or lucky yeah <laughs> which not not everyone is Yep. But should have. Yeah. I mean, I think that was super smart. I think I think a trilogy of standalones is a really smart deal to sign, especially as a debut. Depends on the money, though, right? Like, I think probably the worst deal to sign is a small contract for a series. Because <laughs> then your chances of getting yeah. fucked are pretty high. <laughs> and then you have to write two more books on uh, not a lot of incentives. So, yeah, it's... It's interesting. We're about to run out of time, but yeah, that is a, a thing that we've talked about among some of our friends. The, for I think especially for our genre, uh, authors who who are writing a book for which they know their their audience is very small and getting smaller, and it just feels like you're putting in so much work for something that nobody cares about any level, whether that's the editor, the publisher, the publicity, yeah. the diminishing pool of readers. Uh, that's that's hard. That's hard on people. 
I think in general it really is hard and you know in the in the darkest moments and I think we all have them as authors because this is hard and we're putting out we're not building cars here you know we're writing books so you know when we have our kind of moments of doubt I had horrible imposter syndrome by the way when I was uh, in London (laughs) that very first time I mean I just didn't think all of this you know whirlwind was you know how could that be me and I I I feel like that's a, a very normal thing to feel, but that sort of self-doubt can raise its head at any point. You know, you know, I'm three books in, and I'm I'm working on actually two different things now at the same time, which may not be smart. But I am still sitting here going, I'm not sure I know how to write a book. You know, <laughs> so oh yeah. Every time I start a new book, I think maybe this is the book where I forget how to write. <laughs> <laughs> It might happen. Well, yeah, it, it might. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Hey, hey, well, you know, that's why you have friends who are, who are here to remind you, oh, here's, you know, here's maybe something you want to look at again. It's important. Yeah, but yes. I feel you have to, uh, you know, to survive in publishing because, okay, I've had a long and checkered career that's been here for four years, right? So that's, that's not long. I'm yeah. still kind of a tadpole, but... Three books is is a thing, and I'm really proud that I've been able to do that. I would like to continue to publish yeah. books, and um, yeah. but at the same time, I think at this point I've realized that you can't, at least I can't, focus on the publishing side and write books. I have to to I have to compartmentalize my brain. I have to write mm-hmm. my books, and then the the whole publishing thing. You know what. You know how much it might sell for, who you might have to, you know, what sort of businessy things are happening. I have to have that almost completely out of my head in order for me to to write a book. And sometimes that's not easy, depending on your timing. I got my third book out really fast after my second. Um, it just happened that I'd written my third book faster, and I I don't want a book a year ever again because that was too fast. I I sort of burned down. In fact, I had texted one of you way back in like February or March or something you probably don't remember this and I had I had because you had said you know if you have questions you want us to ask somebody on the podcast send us a question and I had asked about burnout because I was sort of at the end I was think I was in first pass pages I think for my third book and pre-publication and all the things that are happening and I had just moved. I, you know, there was a bunch of sort of life stuff happening, and I was supposed to be writing my, you know, thinking about my fourth book at the at the very least. And I just was so tired. And uh, you know, so so I think everybody develops what or learns what kind of pace they can keep. And and I learned about myself with the way my life is that I cannot put out a historical novel, a good historical novel, in a year. I just can't. You know, other people can, and I am just in yeah. awe of of their abilities. But I, I don't have the <laughs> I don't have the right brain power for that. <laughs> I think that's very very wise advice, and um, also I think four years might be quite a long time in this industry <laughs> to be going. So, would you like to kind of plug yourself in books and tell people where they can? My newest book is Sinners of Starlight City. Uh, that's my American and Sicilian sort of godfathery kind of book. 
And that came out in July, so you can find that, hopefully. <laughs> Especially at airports. Everybody keeps sending me pictures of it at airports, which is really cool. I, I, I love that. So if that you see it, send me a cool. picture. I'm on various social media, Twitter, um, Annika Scott one I refuse to call it anything else. I am on Blue Sky as, I think, author Annika Scott, and I'm on Instagram, Annika Writes Books. I have a website, AnnikaScott.com. And yeah, probably other places, but you can Google me. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.